0: So today we're going to be in Genesis three, fifteen. That's our text. It's just one verse. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, would you help me to take this precious, precious promise from your word and to open it up to your people today? I pray they would get it, that they would see the glory in this text, that they would see the glory in Jesus and the victory that they have in their Savior today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 3.15 is the first account of the gospel that was ever preached. And interestingly, the preacher was God himself. And the congregation consisted of three people, Satan, Adam, and Eve. And actually, God is preaching to Satan here, but Adam and Eve are listening in on the conversation. The whole sermon couldn't have taken more than 12 seconds. I timed myself reading the text. (laughs) A 12-second sermon, it's one sentence long. But it's one of the most powerful, pregnant, little gospel nuggets that we have in the Bible. In fact, it's the very first messianic promise. Now, there are dozens of messianic promises in the Old Testament. A messianic prophecy is a prophecy that points forward to the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Champion. Well, this is the very first one. And what we find here, as we take a look at it, we have to understand it in its context. So I want you to pull back a little bit and take a look at the context in which Genesis 3.15 is found. The directly preceding verse is God bringing a curse upon the serpent. Notice verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field on your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. So God's bringing a curse upon the serpent. God is bringing a sentence of punishment upon him. Now, just a few minutes before, the serpent had been really, really happy. He was just rejoicing because he had been able to cause the man and the woman to disobey God and to obey him. And you know what happened when he did that? Instead of being Lords, or exercising dominion over all of God's creation, now Adam and Eve are subjugated and become the servants, the slaves to Satan. And so Satan's really happy about that. He's been able to introduce sin. He's been able to destroy God's works. And he's been able to stamp his own image on the first man and woman. And so he's just reveling in all of this. And then all of a sudden, as he's happy and rejoicing, God brings the hammer down in chapter 3 verse 15 and says you're going to have your head crushed serpent because I'm going to raise up the seed of the woman that's going to do battle with you so Genesis three fifteen is all about a war in fact if you take a look at verse 15 God says I will put enmity between you and the woman now enmity that's not a word that we use all the time is it anybody use that word in the last 24 hours <laughs> The last week, <laughs> we just don't use the word. The word means hostility, it means hatred. And what God is basically saying is that He is going to cause there to be warfare between the woman and the serpent, and between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring, and there's going to be one decisive battle between the Real seed of the woman, who is Jesus Christ, and the real seed of the serpent, who is Satan. And they're going to go head-to-head, toe-to-toe, in one final decisive battle, and Jesus is going to crush the head of the serpent, even though the serpent is going to bite his heel. That's what the prophecy is all about. But whenever you come to talk about war, there's always three things. You've got armies in the war. You've got generals that are over those armies in the war. And you've got an outcome, don't you? Somebody wins and somebody loses. And all three of those elements of warfare are found in verse 15. I want you to look, first of all, at the armies that are in this war. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And we'll stop there for a minute. These are the original armies. They're one person apiece. One one person army on this side, one person army on that side. The woman and the serpent. And they're standing off. God's going to put hostility and hatred and warfare between these two armies, these two persons. Now, that's interesting because just a few moments before, Eve and the serpent were great friends, weren't they? They had just been having this friendly conversation. And in fact, the serpent was giving some friendly advice. And Eve took it. His friendly advice was, Hey, I know a way that you can be just as God. All you have to do is eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Eve thought, well, that's great advice. I'll take you up on it. So there's this friendship, this camaraderie between the serpent and Eve. Well, when we come to verse 13, all of that's gone. It's out the window because in verse 13, when God confronts the woman, the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. He's no longer a friend. He's a deceiver, he's a seducer, he's a liar. And so God has already put this enmity between the serpent and the woman. And the woman doesn't trust him anymore. She hates what he's done. She sees the, the, the wreckage and the misery of the fall that has come into the world because of what she has done in obedience to Satan. And so there's this enmity. But the armies in this warfare start out with one person on each side. They're going to grow into mass multitudes of people on each army on each side. Because God goes on to say, and between your seed and her seed, I'm going to put enmity not just between you, Eve, and you, serpent, but I'm going to put enmity between the seed or the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. Now, so what are we talking about here? We're talking about the followers of God and the followers of Satan. There's going to be war between these followers a perpetual war that will never end as long as there is a world. So, warfare. Now, the word he uses is seed, but that's an interesting word because you can can understand that word in its singular sense or in its plural sense. So, God could be saying, I'm going to put enmity between your singular offspring and your singular offspring, Or he could be saying, I'm going to put hostility and warfare between your multitude of descendants or offspring and your multitude of descendants, your offspring. And I believe God used this particular word because it's vague enough to be understood both ways and both senses are absolutely true. Let's look at it in its big sense, that this is a multitude of offspring. He says, I'm going to put enmity between your seed, Satan, and the woman's seed. So let's take a look at... Satan's seed who would comprise Satan's offspring okay demons what sure people the people who crucified Jesus Christ in John eight forty four, Jesus said to the religious leaders of his day he said you are of your father the devil what people have the devil for their father according to Jesus yes In Matthew 23, verse 33, he looked at the scribes and the Pharisees and he said, "'You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell?' So here Jesus talks to religious people and he calls them serpents. That's interesting because there was a serpent there in the beginning. And another time Jesus tells a parable about the wheat and the tares. And the disciples came to him afterwards and said, "'Tell us what that means. What does this parable mean?' And Jesus said, the tares, these are the sons of who? The evil one. So evidently, in this world, there are people who are the sons of Satan. Satan is their father. They are his children. In fact, in 1 John chapter 3, in verse 10, John says, By this we know the children of God and the children of the devil. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So here we have the children of God on one side. Those would be the seed of the woman. Then we have the children of the devil. That would be the seed of the serpent. And God here in Genesis 3.15 is saying there's going to be warfare between these two camps. So here we have the seed of the serpent. Let's take a look at the seed of the woman. Who would these people be? They would be Christians. Believers. The saved. If you look at the seed of the serpent being the world, the seed of the woman would be the church. Followers of Satan, followers of the Lamb. And we've always had a division, haven't we? Since time immemorial, since this promise was given, there has always been a seed of the woman and a seed of the serpent. So the woman's seed, these would be all those people who have been justified, declared righteous, through the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. All the saved of all the ages, the godly remnant throughout history. In fact, if you go over to the book of Genesis, there's a a really incredible verse there that sums up all that we've been talking about. It's, It's Revelation 12, verse 17. And it says, And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. That word could be seed. The rest of her seed. Who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Now, who is this dragon that was enraged? It's the devil, right? We know that from chapter 12, verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan. So just another way of looking at the serpent. He's also a dragon. Notice who he's enraged with. The woman and the rest of her offspring. Does that ring some bells for you? Genesis 3.15 In Revelation, God is wrapping up all of the motifs that start in the book of our Bible, the beginning of our Bible, in the book of Genesis. So he's taken this promise in Genesis 3.15 and he's showing how it's finally going to come to its conclusion and climax. And he says, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war, enmity with the rest of her offspring and who are they? They're those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. They hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's how you know who the seed of the woman is. There are people of all the ages who have trusted in the testimony of the Messiah, whether he was a Messiah to come or a Messiah who has come. The Old Testament, they look forward to God's deliverer who is going to come. In the New Testament, we look back To that deliverer who has come. But we hold to the testimony of Jesus. And as a result of trusting in the Son of God. We seek to keep his commandments. That's the seed of the woman. So we've got this invisible warfare. Going on between the two seeds. And if you look at history. Redemptive history. You'll see that this has always been taking place. Think about. The direct offspring of Cain, or excuse me, of uh, Adam and Eve. They have two sons, Cain and Abel. Of course, we know the story. Cain rises up in anger. He kills his brother, Abel. And when you go to the New Testament, the book of 1 John, chapter 3, it's right around verse 11 or so. It says that Cain was of the evil one. Cain was of the serpent's seed. And so he made war against the woman's seed. He killed his own brother. We'll go further in history. And there we have Isaac, the son of Abraham. Isaac is born, but he has a brother named Ishmael who doesn't like the fact that this little baby is getting all the attention. And so Ishmael starts to persecute his brother. Remember, he starts to mock him. And Abraham is so outraged at this that he wants to send uh, Hagar, the mother, and the son, Ishmael, away. So again, you find... These two seeds being at enmity with each other. And when you look at the New Testament commentary on that, it's in Galatians chapter 4, verse 29. This is what Paul says about it. But as at that time, he who was born according to the flesh, who would that be? Ishmael. Persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. Who's that? Isaac. So it is now also. So the seed of the serpent was persecuting the seed of the woman. And Paul says it's been that way all through history, and it's still going on now. People born of the flesh will persecute those born of the Spirit. We'll go further. We have then two twins born, Jacob and Esau. And we find, well Jacob was not a a saint, he wasn't an angel, was he? (laughs) He stole the birthright, he stole the blessing, and that made his brother really mad, and his brother wanted to kill him, so Jacob actually had to hightail it out of there and run for his life. There was, again, the persecution of the serpent seed with the woman's seed. So there's been this warfare that's been going on forever, and Jesus talks about that in John chapter 15. I'm going to read to you from John 15, verses 18 and 19. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. There's some enmity here, isn't there? Jesus and the world. Or Jesus' followers and the world's followers. He says in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. You're part of the seed of the woman. That's a good thing. But know that because you're part of the seed of the woman, you're going to be hated by the world, the seed of the serpent. So God raises up an opposing rival, an opposing kingdom that will hate the devil and hate all of his evil works. And because there is this animosity, there's warfare. So those are the two armies, the two seeds. Now let's look at the two generals. Let's go back to Genesis 3.15. There's two generals here. I want you to notice a shift in this verse. He says, there's going to be enmity between your seed and her seed. And then all of a sudden, he changes from the plural to the singular. And he says, he, not they, he shall bruise you, singular, on the head. And you, singular, shall bruise him on the heel. We go from two different seeds to a he, you, and a you, him situation. So something's happened here. We're not focusing on the two armies now. We're focusing on the generals that command those armies. And there are two. Satan commands the serpent's seed. Jesus commands the woman's seed. Let's look at Satan as a general. Jesus talked about him in this way. In John twelve thirty one. Jesus said, "...the ruler of this world is coming." And he has nothing in me. He called him the ruler of this world. In Ephesians 2 verse 2. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. And Paul also calls him in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4, the God of this world. Now look at these titles. The ruler of this world. The prince of the power of the air. The God of this world. He's a ruler. He's a prince. He's a God over a particular sphere. He's not the God, but he's a God over his own kingdom. He's the ruling, commanding, five-star general over the kingdom of darkness. So make no mistake about it. Satan is a ruler. He is a ruling king. He has power, and he has cunning wisdom. And we, we ought not to take him as be some little pushover. He's not. He is a formidable foe. In fact, in 1 John 5, 19, it says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's how extensive his rule goes over all the lost of all the ages. But Jesus is also a five-star general over his kingdom. Do you remember when he was born into the world that the magi came looking for him and they said, hey, we've come to look for him who is king of the Jews? Well, Jesus is the king. He was born to be a king. In fact, when he went before Pilate, right before he was crucified, Jesus said, you say correctly that I am a king. Yes, you're right. I am a king. In fact, we find in the book of um, Revelation, chapter 11, verse 15, that all the hosts of heaven will one day say this, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. So Jesus is just as much a king over his kingdom as Satan is a king over his kingdom. Two five-star generals. And the point of Genesis 3.15 is that there's, there would come one day a decisive final battle where Jesus Christ would stand toe-to-toe with Satan, look him in the eye, and they would do battle. And the destiny of millions of people would hang in the balance as to who won that battle. He said, what are you talking about? Well, go back with me in your mind to the battle between Goliath and David. You remember that story. Everybody knows the story. Goliath would come out every day and all of the Philistines were arrayed on the top of this mountain and all of the Israelites were arrayed on this mountain and there was the Valley of Elah between them. And Goliath would come out and he would yell over to the Israelites, set apart a man that will fight with me. And if I kill him, you'll become our slaves. But if he kills me, we'll become your slaves. Remember that? So the battle was not to be between all of the people of Israel against all the Philistines. The battle was going to be between two representatives. Goliath and David. Whoever won would take all the spoils. And that's what happens here in Genesis 3.15. It's not that we're doing battle against Satan and if we can just muster enough, Christians will overturn his kingdom. No, that's not it at all. We have Jesus Christ going head-to-head, toe-to-toe with Satan in one final climactic battle. Whoever wins takes everything. So, we have two armies. We have two generals. And we have two different outcomes. In every war, there's a winner and a loser, isn't there? In the Civil War, the South lost, the North won. <laughs> in the war for independence... England lost, the British lost, and the 13 colonies here in America won. In World War II, the Nazis lost, the British and the Americans won. It's the same here. Someone wins, somebody loses. Now notice what he says here in verse 15. He, that is the seed of the woman, is going to bruise you on the head, and you, Satan, are going to bruise him on the heel. Let's take Satan's part first. What was the outcome with Satan? Satan. Satan was going to bruise Jesus on the heel. The word bruise means to strike or to fall upon or to crush. I'm going to take it in its sense that he struck Jesus. You know, if, if a man is walking through a field and he's, he's barefoot and he lifts up his foot to take a step and a snake who's under the brush hiding behind it just springs out and lashes his fangs into the heel of that man's foot, it's going to be really, really painful but usually it won't be fatal. But if that man takes his foot and comes down on the head of the snake, that's over for the snake. He's gone. It's fatal for the snake. Here we have a very painful injury put to Jesus Christ, but not a fatal injury. But Jesus will deal a fatal injury to Satan. So here we have the bruising of the heel of the seed of the woman. And we find Satan striking Jesus ever since he was born into the world. Do you remember when Herod finds out about the Magi's prediction that there's going to be a king born? And of course, Herod's a very jealous king. He doesn't want anyone to be a rival to his throne. And So what does he do? You got it. You've been reading your Bible, Angela. Good for you. Yeah, he wants to kill off all the male children two years old and, and under. So he's striking out at Christ, trying to get rid of him. Who do you think was in putting that thought in Herod's mind? Satan was doing that. Later on, Jesus is driven into the wilderness. He's fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and Satan comes to him. And one of the temptations is, oh, if you're the son of God, just throw yourself off of the temple. He'll give his angels charge concerning you to bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan there is tempting Jesus to do something irrational, out of the will of God so that he will fall to the ground and die. He's trying to get rid of him. And as Satan begins to strike at Jesus, we find Jesus retaliating. Jesus goes about what? Casting out demons wherever he goes. And then he just doesn't do it by himself. He calls disciples after him and then he gives them the authority to cast out demons. In fact, he says to his disciples at one point, I have given you authority over serpents and scorpions, and none of the power of the enemy shall be able to injure you. He says, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. And the disciples came back all excited from a journey, and they said, Lord, the demons are subject to us in your name. And he says, don't be so excited about that. Be excited about your names being written in heaven. But it's true. He gave his disciples authority over Satan to be able to cast out demons. So Satan strikes him, Jesus fights back, but the ultimate strike that Jesus or I'm sorry, that Satan lashed out against Jesus Christ was the cross. That was the ultimate. That's when he sunk his fangs into the heel of Jesus Christ and released all of his venom, all of his poison, trying to get rid of him and to destroy him. And that's when we find the strong man lashing out. And so he bruised his heel. Jesus could say, the prince of this world is coming. Jesus knew that Satan was coming after him. That Jesus was that, certain, that Satan was going to try to destroy him. The prince of this world is coming. And then when Satan did come, he, he put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. If he could just put it into the heart of one of the disciples, maybe he could get rid of Of Jesus Christ so Satan betrays Christ and then Satan puts it into the heart of the Jewish leaders to hold some kind of a mock kangaroo court and try Jesus and find him guilty and then they go to Pilate and say we can't exercise the death penalty so we need you and so they went to Pilate seeking to have the death penalty enacted on Jesus Christ And you can see behind all of this, the invisible working of Satan, stirring up the Jews, stirring up Pilate to have him scourged, and then to have him crucified. And as a response to these strikes at the heel of Jesus, Jesus is sweating great drops of blood. And he's having the crown of thorns pressed into his brow. And he's taking the lashes across his back till it becomes like hamburger meat. And he's having that, that robe draped around him. And he's being mocked, hail, king of the Jews. And people are feigning worship to him, falling on their knees, making fun of him, degrading him, humiliating him. And finally, he's nailed to two pieces of timber, lifted in the sky to hang there to die. The crown of thorns pressing in, the, the, the nails through the wrists and through the feet, the, the spear through the side. And there he prays for his captors. He prays for those that are tormenting him. So Satan strikes him, and he strikes him with everything that he has. But as Satan has got his fangs into the heel of Jesus, you might say the other shoe drops. The other foot comes down on his head. Because the very cross that Satan was trying to use to get rid of Jesus was the very thing that destroyed him. Isn't that ironic? Satan tries to destroy Jesus through the cross, and the cross is what destroys him. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14 I want to read to you the, this great great passage it says since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he likewise partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil now what did the cross do to Satan according to that verse powerless. rendered him powerless powerless Do you believe that? Okay, another New Testament promise. Colossians 2.15 says that when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through... Now this could be translated through them or through it. Through it would mean through the cross, and I think that's a better translation of that verse. Jesus rendered Satan powerless and he disarmed him, triumphing over him through the cross. So here we have the cross doing two things, rendering him powerless and disarming him. So what does it mean to disarm somebody? Yeah. They've got a machine gun. You knock them in the head, take away the machine gun. They can't do any, they can't hurt you anymore. Satan can't hurt the person who is in Jesus Christ. He is A roaring lion he is seeking someone to devour but he can't devour you at the cross jesus knocked all of his teeth out all he's got is a roar left and he roars real loud but he doesn't have any teeth he can't he can gum you (laughs) but he can't do any real hurt to you in fact first john chapter 3 verse 8 says the son of god appeared for this purpose that he might destroy the works of the devil So what I want you to see this morning, and I want you to believe this morning, is that Jesus, through the cross, has conquered your greatest adversary. Satan has been defeated once for all. His back has been broken. His head has been crushed. He's been disarmed. He's been rendered powerless. And Jesus has destroyed his works. And if you belong to Jesus, you don't have to fear him. You can walk in victory over him. Because the seed of the woman has defeated, he's crushed the head of the seed of the serpent. Now let's draw out some personal application. What do we do with this great gospel promise of Genesis 3.15? The first thing I want you to do with it is I want you this morning to be amazed at the grace of God. And What do I mean by that? I mean, go back with me to when this promise was given. God had created the man and the woman, And put them in a perfect paradise garden. They had everything they could ever want. Everything they'd ever need. Everything they'd ever want to be completely happy was theirs. And God himself came to them and communed with them and was their friend. There was fellowship between the man and the woman and God. And at the very first temptation, (laughs) they rebelled against him and chose contrary to what their maker had ordained for them very first time and after they sin what do they do do they humble themselves and cry out to him for mercy and confess their sin no (laughs) they sow fig leaves trying to hide their sin and they know that's not going to do any good so then they go and they they hide under the trees there in the garden thinking that god can't find them and when god finds them and calls them out and confronts them with sin what do they do Blame everybody else, right? It's her fault. No, it's a servant's fault. It's not our fault. You would think that when God finally gets around to confronting these people, He would just take them. First, He'd kill them and then cast their souls into hell. That's what they deserve. But what does God do? He gives them a promise. Now, He does banish them from paradise, but before He does that, He gives them a promise. And this promise is going to give them two things. It's going to give them hope and comfort. Hope because a deliverer has been promised. A champion is going to arise. We don't know who he is or how long we're going to have to wait. But God is going to raise up a seed from the woman that's going to crush the head of this snake. And he's going to restore us to the condition before sin came into the world. That would give them hope. Secondly, it would give them comfort. Do you know why? Because God had told them in the day that you eat of that fruit, you shall surely die. But God had also just told them in Genesis 3.15 that Eve, you're going to have a seed. Now she didn't have a seed yet, did she? She didn't have any children. She didn't have any offspring. So this would tell the man and the woman, wait, God's going to, maybe we're going to die, but we're... We're not going to die today because Eve still has to have an offspring and that offspring has to arise to defeat Satan. So it was comfort them to know that they weren't going to be immediately executed. And what I want you to see here is the amazing grace and mercy of God. When his justice could have rightly demanded their execution on the spot, instead he offers them a promise of a savior. I mean, it's mind-blowing the love of God, the mercy of God. And this is the the gospel that we carry with us, this promise of grace that comes through a deliverer that is climaxed in Jesus Christ and climaxed in his work at, at the cross at Calvary. That's where mercy comes to us. So be amazed this morning. Be overwhelmed with the grace of God, the goodness of God, the love of God towards you. And carry that message to other people. Don't be content just to let your own heart swell up with joy. Release this news so that other people's hearts can be swelled with joy. But then the second thing I want you to look at is I want you to be victorious through Christ. I want you to be victorious. Not only amazed at His grace, but victorious through Jesus. Now, let's go in our Bibles over to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to conclude there today. This is the passage in your Bible that is the most extensive treatment of spiritual warfare. You won't find any more extensive treatment than Ephesians chapter 6, 10 through about verse 20. And it is amazing to me how certain pockets of Christians will go hog wild about spiritual warfare and they'll talk about this forever. And they'll come up with all kinds of innovative, interesting, novel ideas of how we're supposed to engage in spiritual warfare. You know, you're supposed to break the certain demon that's over your city by doing this or that or have this rally. Or you're supposed to bind him and cast him into the pit. What I want you to see from Ephesians chapter 6 is he doesn't say anything like that. It's, it's, it's not very dramatic when you come to Ephesians 6. It seems very ordinary. But here are the keys to help us not gain victory but stand in the victory that Christ has already achieved for you. Let's read it. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, Take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore. And I'll stop right there. The very first thing Paul says there's two exhortations here. Exhortation number one be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, what does that tell you? Yes. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. The Lord will fight for you this day. Does that bring back passages from the Old Testament? He says, be strong in the Lord. God isn't expecting us to somehow roll up our sleeves and duke it out with the devil or his demons every day. He's saying, be strong in the Lord. Your strength must be in Jesus. And in the power, the strength of His might. Not yours, His. Exhortation number two. And this is actually the same one he's just given to us, just in a different wording. Put on the full armor of God. Be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God. I believe those are one and the same thing. Verse 11 explains verse 10. Notice it's God's armor. It's not yours. It's His. And as you work your way through this armor, what you're going to see is that every piece of armor will help you to see a different facet of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about that? The belt of truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. The breastplate of righteousness. 1 Corinthians 1 says that um, by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who has become to us wisdom from God and sanctification and redemption and righteousness. So Jesus is our righteousness. Jesus is truth. We find him wearing the shoes of the gospel. Well, Jesus is the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 to 3. We find Jesus holding up a shield of faith. Jesus is the object of our saving faith. We find him saying, Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Jesus is the Word. It doesn't matter what you look at in this panoply of armor. Jesus is that armor. And so... Be strong in the Lord. How do you do that? You put on the full armor of God. How do you do that? You clothe yourself with Christ. You run to Christ and hide yourself in Christ. Your armor is like this this invisible shield around you. It goes me, <laughs> takes me back to lost in, the spa, lost in Space days when I was a little kid running home from school. None of you guys know it. Well, Kathy might know it. <laughs> Debbie will know it greatest show on earth we love lost in space anyway there is this force field around them and they could shoot all their missiles at them and they were safe inside their force field Jesus is our force field he is the shield the devil can't get to you if you are in Christ and so what he's saying here is just hold up all of that armor hide yourself in the armor of Jesus so when Satan comes after you he's got to go through Jesus to get to you notice what he says in verse 11 stand firm Verse 13, stand firm. Verse 14, stand firm. You think he's trying to make a point? There's nothing here about binding demons or casting down territorial spirits. It's all about standing firm in the victory that Christ has already won. He already crushed the snake. He's dead. Well, he's he's writhing in agony. He'll he'll be out of his misery soon enough, but his tail flickers a little bit, but he can't really do anything to God's people. We have the victory in Jesus. And so he says, don't conquer him. He's already conquered. Keep the ground that Jesus has already won for you. You don't have to gain the ground. Just hold it. Stand firm. Don't let that enemy get any ground on you. Maintain the victory that is yours in Jesus Christ. So put on the armor. Put it on. Don't let Satan come against you. He's going to have to come Through Jesus, because you're running to Jesus, you're hiding yourself in Jesus. So how does this work? Satan comes to you, and he says, you are the most rotten Christian I have ever seen. Look at what you just did. Are you ever going to overcome that thing? No. Look at it. You did it it yesterday. You did it five years ago. You did it ten years ago. Can you really even call yourself a Christian? And he's attacking you. He's slandering you. So what do you do? Well, first of all, you agree with them. You're right. I'm a pretty rotten Christian. (laughs) That's right. I'm still doing things that I was doing 10 years ago. But Jesus is my righteousness. And you put on the breastplate. Christ is my righteousness. I don't stand before you, Satan, in my righteousness. I stand before you and the demons of hell and God Almighty, not in clothed in anything that I've ever done, but in Jesus. He is my righteousness. So Satan comes to you and he starts niggling at your mind, putting doubts in your mind. Well, how do you fight that off? You run to Jesus Christ. He is your truth. And you find all truth in Jesus. And you remind yourself of who Jesus is and what he has done. And you remind yourself of his gospel. And doubts start to flee. Because Jesus is truth. Satan comes against you and he starts trying to tempt you to go into this particular area of sin in your life. What do you do? You wield the sword, which is Christ, the the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, and you wield that sword and the truth of Jesus against him, and you quote the Word of God and you tell him what God has said. And those alluring things start to diminish because Jesus starts to get bigger. When Jesus is bigger than your sin, sin loses its power and Jesus has dominion over that thing. So whatever Satan tries to do in your life, run to Jesus, hide in Jesus, and find Him to be all that you need. Don't start wielding this sword around in your own strength. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His mind. Father, I pray for your children here today that you would help them find everything they need in Jesus. Lord we don't have it in ourselves. If we were expected the Lord to be able to fight off Satan's advances in our own strength, we would be toast. We would be just blown away. But we're thankful that Jesus Christ has won the victory over Satan once and for all. That his back is broken, that he's put out of commission, he's harmless, he's been disarmed, his works are destroyed. And King Jesus is victor. And Lord, we thank you that we are on the winning side of this war. We pray, Father, for grace to stand firm in the victory that Jesus has already won. We pray, Father, that we would hide ourselves in him. And that he would be lifted up. And that he would be the one that receives the glory. And We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.